Schmimmer's Netter, just talking to teachers. Podcast pedagogy. What is Phil reading this week? Podcast pedagogy. Listening to teachers. Nailer's Natter, just talking to teachers. Nailer's Natter the book. Ideas and advice from the collective wisdom of teachers. Nailer's Natter brings together a wealth of advice from the most influential voices in education today. In this exciting one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting, drawing on the advice and opinions from some of the world's most innovative educators. Available now for pre-order from Amazon and out on July 7th, 2022. Talking to teachers about educational books, why we love them and how we use them in our classrooms. With guest authors, publishers, podcasters, and of course, teachers. Okay, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Nailers Natter. Now, listeners, you will know that we seem to be on a little bit of a theme currently. So last episode, we were talking about um, surviving an Ofsted inspection with Dominic Salas. And this time, I'm delighted to be joined by Tracy O'Brien talking about her brand new John Cat book, which is Rethinking School Inspection, Is There a Better Way? So Tracy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great pleasure. So just do us a little uh, introduction, if you can, just tell listeners a little bit about you, your career to this point, and maybe a little bit about why you decided to write this book. I have been a teacher. I've been in education for just over 30 years, uh, mainly secondary. Um, Well, when I say mainly, pretty much all of it, 29 years in secondary. And I've done various roles. I've worked for London Challenge. I've done a bit for the DfE. I've been an AST. Uh, director of a teaching school so lots and lots to do with um, system-wide leadership that sort of peer review peer challenge that kind of thing um, I've been a head teacher deputy head teacher I've been in senior leadership for about 15 years and most currently I have um, gone to the primary sector to do a primary heads job which I could do part-time which allowed me to write this book it's my second book um, and I've also found it incredibly useful because when I was thinking about Ofsted and um, school accountability, actually being inside a different phase has been completely eye-opening for me because I always thought that, you know, the stuff we talk about leadership and accountability was be quite sort of generic. But actually, when you look at primary and you look at early years, it is completely different. And so something around the framework and rewriting the Ofsted framework definitely comes to mind about making it phase-specific. The reason I wrote this book Last year, I wrote a book called School Self-Review, which was around, again, thinking around accountability and things that we could do in school that were sensible about quality assurance, that were triangulating our activity rather than, you know, when loads of people in senior teams do pupil voice and loads of people do book scrutinies. And as the classroom teacher, you are kind of over-monitored in that space. And so actually the whole book was about sensible school review and how we can kind of hold people to account but allowing autonomy and as I was writing it I just thought more and more about accountability and actually that led me to the book about Ofsted and school inspection. Great stuff thank you and the school self-review a sensible approach um, Tracy's first book uh, we'll do a link in the podcast show notes because that's a John Cat book as well so yeah we'll do some links to that. Okay, right. Thank you for that, Tracy. So uh, just interesting for the listener on a side note, the number of people that have come through as ASTs on this podcast is unbelievable. <laughs> so, you know, obviously we saw in the news yesterday that uh, there were certain proposals around the uh, the drafting in of super teachers to super turn around squad. the fortunes of, yeah, exactly, yeah. turn around the fortunes of schools that were struggling. But, you know, ASTs, um, do, do seem to have a, quite a few of them that have gone on to do uh, great things in education. So, you know, Let's not discount it completely. Who knows? I, th- I think the AST role was a fabulous role for people who didn't necessarily want to get into the world of leadership because you could have great reach, you know, whether it was across your school or a number of schools. Um, and actually, you only talked about kind of teaching and learning and you did some coaching. And so actually, it was a really, really fulfilling role. Um, I think the, the problem, which we, I know we won't talk about it, but with some of these ideas coming out, is that. It, it, sort of the quick fix thing and actually an AST role 
like a coach is something which is much more longer term and embedding change. Um, but yeah, so we can part that for another time. We can. We must do a podcast exclusively on ASTs. And, and never in my 22 years have I been so proud as when I got a pass on the AST when my folder was up to scratch. Yes. And, I could go out. and if you remember at the time, the DFE did a little video that showed you the role of the of the uh, AST. And the, the best thing about it seemed to be that you got a, your own reserved car parking space at all the different no. schools that you went to, which I just thought yes, was... Yes, if you were lucky. <laughs> that, that was the, the real incentive for me to go into that. Right, let's get back into the book and be a bit more serious. So big question, Tracy, to start, but it's the one that you start chapter one with. So what is wrong with our current school inspection model? Right. Okay. So it, it is a tricky one because actually it, I don't I don't know many people who don't think that schools should be held to account. I think that's a given and I think everybody wants um, some accountability framework. The issues we have at the moment are um, varied. Some have more magnitude than others, but I think it comes down to kind of six or seven things. Workload, and what what I mean specifically is the workload that this top-down accountability means for everybody in that chain. So whether you're a head teacher, a deputy, whether you're in charge of a specific project at school, whether you're the class teacher, that kind of level of bureaucracy and over monitoring absolutely increases workload, and it takes away the time and the energy from people just getting on with the job of school improvement. I think with that comes stress. And obviously, we've seen some horrific um, outcomes of that. Inconsistencies, whether it's the inspections, the inspectors, the reports, um, it, it's time away from thinking about teaching, time away from you know thinking about leading your school. It's awfully high stakes. And, and again, that has come through again and again recently. It's career-breaking at worst. Um, it causes competition. Uh, you, you know, you've got the big banners outside schools. Um, it's just not a very positive experience, I think. I mean, I could go on. I think it doesn't take context into account. There's lots of schools who face different challenges and have different experiences, and the framework doesn't take context into account. And also, the thing I mentioned earlier about one framework for all, that, that doesn't really work. Um and I think generally what that means is that sense of deprofessionalization for people. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I found coming through is that we just don't seem to be trusted to A, know how to do the job, B, do the job, and C, know how to find out how to do the job better by ourselves. So that's probably more than six or seven. <laughs> um, and there's probably more that your listeners will will think about. And obviously, it's very personal, isn't it? Somebody's experience of Ofsted um, is, is a very personal thing. And so for some people, it goes really well. And it's brilliant. And it's defining for the school and the community. And it brings great pride. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying that generally, it, it's too burdensome at large, if that makes sense. No, it does. It makes perfect sense. And just for the listener who's considering going out and buying this book, and obviously you've mentioned, Tracy, how much time you spent into this. And obviously I read a lot of educational books and get sent a lot of educational books. The amount of effort and, and research that's clearly gone into this to, you know, because obviously this is quite, um, you know, a difficult topic to encompass, but you've really gone into depth in terms of the research that you've done around this and you've drawn from lots of different sources, you know, experts in the field, professional organizations, you know, unions, leadership unions. There's a lot of detail in there. And mm -hmm. for the listener, you know, this really does give a good summary in terms of what kind of things that are, you know, are working well and what kind of things perhaps yeah. we need to have a look at. Um, and obviously, you know, I was particularly interested in the sections that you've talked about there in terms of the context because, you know, in, in shameless plug for own book again, you know, I'm spending quite mm -hmm. a lot of time at the moment looking into, you know, the concept that Tom Bennett quoted to me, which was, you know, the idea yeah. that some schools are harder than others. It absolutely mm -hmm. does not take that into account with the framework mm -hmm. as is. And I think that you've obviously looked into that uh, in, in the opening chapter. I think there, there was, there was um, something last week around the EBAC and it was there was something on Twitter where people were quoting different things about, you know, on the one hand, Ofsted is saying it isn't the make or break for a school if, if lots of percentage of the, you know, high number of children aren't doing the EBAC. And in another school, very few were doing the EBAC. And, you know, one school it was fine and the other school it wasn't fine. And so actually that kind of inconsistency, it doesn't, it doesn't show that context of that school 
is working in one place, but actually it might be being taken account of another. So it's just so inconsistent. It's really hard to know what what the tick box is, you know. So even though we're having this tick box culture of this top-down bureaucracy, accountability, we're not even sure, even when we've got a framework, whether we're still going to get the boxes ticked. Um, it's just one thing for one and one thing for the other. And so that that really is a big issue for schools because all leaders want to do it properly and all leaders want to get, and all the, all the staff working in the school want it to go well. And actually, when you don't know what it is that the inspectors are looking for or what they're going to say, it just makes it impossible. No, it absolutely does. And this book will be, be hugely helpful for people that uh, are either experienced it recently or obviously we're all going to experience it at some point. Mm-hmm. So let's get into this idea. And you've talked about it, about accountability. And towards the end of, of chapter two, which is entitled The Purpose of School Accountability and Inspection, you've referenced that the, the work they did in the first book. And I just this kind of stuck with me a little bit because I've heard this line quite a few times recently that, it's of course right that we've got accountability and we operate in the public sector and we're responsible for the education and prospects of young people and we spend public money. We must demonstrate that we are worthy of the trust and resources allocated to us. And what you've done in the second chapter is you've talked about the fact that there needs to be accountability, but there's different ways of looking at that. And it doesn't have to be, as you said before, a kind of one size fits all you know, if you haven't ticked this box, this is what you get. Yeah. If you have ticked that box, this is what you get. So talk to us a little bit about what you think good systems of accountability should demonstrate. I mean, there's lots of players, aren't there? There's lots of players in holding schools to account. So you've got all your different stakeholders and you've got, you know, your parents, your governors, whether you're in a mat, you've got the students themselves. And actually, I think I think it's a really complex question because, and I, ha- I haven't worked it out, um, so, for example, I know in Northern Ireland, they've, they've put it on hold because they absolutely have gone back to the drawing board and thought we cannot, you know, the, the unions have said, stop it right now. We can't have school inspections because we don't know what it is to inspect properly. And I think there has to be a national discourse around what schools or how schools should be held to account, because you could be held to account about your outcomes. You could be held to account about um pupil welfare, well-being, destinations. And I suppose, you know, the framework does try to look at all of those things. But I think it's so narrow in its in its reach that actually a huge conversation needs to be had from people across the sphere about what it's so difficult, isn't it? What is the purpose of education? What's the purpose of schools? Um, are we talking about what the people in politics think about it now? Is it politically aligned to the now government or will that change? And so actually the question is, is really, really broad. And I don't have the answer for that. I know that I feel we do need to be held you know, accountable. I do think obviously outcomes are important. I mean, I remember when we had CVA. I don't know if you remember that contextual value added. Lots of people thought it lowered standards, but actually it was a, it was kind of a progress eight measure. A certain number of years ago that took context into account and so when you're being held to account for outcomes something like that um, it was flawed which is why it went but something like that which actually takes in the context of your school so I think trying to put a framework together that is broad enough in scope to take that into account I think is very difficult I think it might mean that actually we have a smaller framework, but a really, really well designed framework by lots of different stakeholders that actually takes time to put together. Um, You know, none of these sort of quick fixes or let's have it done in six months, um, but a really well thought through framework. And I think schools do want to be held to account like anybody to know, am I doing this well? Could I do this better? Oh, who else does this really well? And so one of the things I write about in the book towards the end is about peer review. Um, Some people um, may have heard of things like Challenge Partners or the School uh, Partnership Programme or the City Challenge. And that was a really good kind of um, place to start around the power of peer review. And I think accountability by peers, I think, is probably in a sort of system-led approach to school improvement I think that's kind of what I'm leaning towards and that's where I'm going with my thinking 
Absolutely. And I mean, I, I think back and obviously schools that are placed in certain categories will get support from HMIs, for example. But I mean, perhaps I'm misremembering this. And obviously you can tell me if I'm wrong, Tracy, on this one. But I'm fairly sure that the level of support and almost that peer um, coaching and support did used to be provided following um, inspection for a period of time when a team would come in often mm-hmm. supported by local authorities at the time to work with. So it wasn't a case of, right, well, we, we as you put in the first chapter, we could have a look at the school for two days, we make a judgment and we go away. There was some kind mm-hmm. of ongoing support, coaching, mentoring, whatever it might be, to make yeah. sure that, you know, that the, the school felt supported in the whole process. So that, that kind of peer review and that peer support yeah. is, is quite appealing, isn't it, in terms of, and you're also likely to be quite a bit a lot more honest, aren't you, about your context, Absolutely. the challenges and what kind yeah. of things you can work on. Yeah, and I, and I think accountability in that in that way is really really healthy. You know, you've got your challenge, it's, it, you've got high challenge, low stakes. I think Mary Myatt says that. You've got your accountability. You've got your partners. Years ago, there was that slogan: "Every school a good school." And I think we really need to think about that. Um, and actually, then that the power of the peer review is really aspirational for all children and all schools. And you you get a sense of fun, I think, from, you know, being able to support other people and and seeing that support pay off. And actually having this sort of utopia where there's no school competition. And I know that's, you know, not possible everywhere, but actually every school, a good school and that your peer review, your peers, your peer teams um, holding you to account, holding each other to account, I think is a really healthy model. Um, I don't know how we get there. I think it's about identifying as a leader your own kind of actions and strategies to improve your school, having somebody to sound that against your peer review body, then working together, identifying who can broker that support. A bit like, you know, effective local authorities have done uh, in the past. Um, Effective mats do that really successfully. So it's about harnessing that kind of collaboration and capacity within our system. and, And that's where I think the accountability will come from. Um, obviously I'd imagine we're going to talk about the grade and and that's a really dangerous thing because I don't think your peer review has a place if we're still grading inspections as well. So, so that's another issue. Yeah, we absolutely, listener, are going to be talking about the grading and um, what kind of opinions we might have on that. And if we just return, Tracy, just to the book in terms of, so we're on chapter three uh, and the role of Ofsted. Now, I, I look at sort of markets for books and I can see this this book's going to have huge appeal right across the teaching system. So you can think, well, teachers can gain a lot from this because you can look at, right, what sits behind inspection? What kind of things do I need to know from my point of view? Clearly, for school leaders for system leaders. But I was thinking, and I, I have a role as uh, a governor and have done for many years, and obviously not everybody that's on a governing body is you know, intimately involved with yeah. education from being a teacher. And I just think chapter three and the way that you've described the role of Ofsted, because it's one of those things that everybody is that sort of habituation bias of, well, we, we always talk about Ofsted, so I kind of think I know what it is. But what, yeah. but, but what you've done is you've really gone through, and you know, in terms of references, I think this is quite possibly the, uh, the oldest <laughs> reference that I've seen in any education but it just shows how long the idea of of inspection for school has been around so talk to us a little bit about the role of Ofsted and perhaps maybe start with that 1876 quote well that that was that was absolutely one of those hilarious moments so I went on when um after I'd sort of had the first book published last year I went back to John Cat the publishers and I said oh I've got an idea for another one And one of the things you have to do, you'll know yourself when you write the book, is you have to look and see if there's any other sort of competitive books out there, similar titles, what's in the field already. And so I went onto Google search, went onto Amazon, and I thought, oh, look, there's a book called School Inspection. Brilliant. Not quite sure how old it is. Let me get it. So you will start off reading around and seeing what's there and if there's a space for your book, because you don't want to regurgitate something, you know, that somebody has done brilliantly already. Um, and so the book arrived and the front of this book is all, you know, it's, it's beautiful. It's white. It's got pencils like all, all teacher books seem to have color pencils on the front. And I opened it and I thought, well, that's funny type. And it was a reprint of a typed book from whenever you said it was, I can't remember, 18 something. And that quote was, was the very first kind of page about the purpose of school inspection. So the purpose of school inspection hasn't changed. And 
you know, may, maybe that's okay, isn't it? Because maybe school inspection is to make sure that the children are safe, the children are getting good quality teaching, um, the teachers are being supported, staff in the school are being supported, the resources are are appropriate, the building's not falling down, which is another issue. Um, so maybe, maybe that, that hasn't changed. But I think, I mean, I did do an awful lot of reading for this book because I wanted it to be something that was... Um, I guess because there's been so much in the last 12 months about Ofsted, I, I just wanted to get it straight in my head about, you know, what's good about it? What, what's what's it for? What's the purpose of, account, you know, this inspection? Um, and Ofsted, as, as an entity, um, they would suggest has led to school improvement. And I guess in my 30 years of teaching, schools holistically are in a much better place than they were there were brilliant schools 30 years ago but there was an awful lot of schools that really really weren't very good um and so actually whether it's Ofsted itself or whether it's having the notion of an inspection body um whether it's other factors so different school improvement work the work of the local authorities city challenge those sorts of things we are in a position where we have got schools which are better, performing better and giving a better deal to our young people. There are, of course, huge issues. We're, we're not, you know, we don't need to, to talk about those because they are very, very current. Um, but the purpose of Ofsted then initially was to see, it was a government driven agenda, was to see if schools would, you know, they're doing well. And I think what's happened over time is it has kind of, um, gone in this sort of pendulum of of political thinking and so sometimes the framework are very much around the the politics of the time and the narratives of different politicians then it will swing a different way and it's something you know people other people are being listened to and I think that's become one of the worries is that it's it's so politically aligned to current thinking that actually sometimes it stops probably what was the beginning, uh, you know, the inception of Ofsted was was probably to check, is this school effective or ineffective? And like you've said, if it was ineffective, how can we help? And, and I guess if that's the, that's the basic premise, then, then that's okay as a premise. And it has changed over time. In the book, I talk about how the framework has changed over time. Um, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Uh, lots of people go on, you know, at the moment about how the framework we have now is much better because it talks about curriculum and teaching and learning and planning and sequencing and memory, whereas the old framework was was much more about outcomes. Actually, I think that's a bit of a swizz in a way because Ofsted don't need to ask schools about data. The data is all over um, the DfE all over different reports it's it's easily available so I think that's a bit of a misnomer that the inspections are not about data anymore the data is completely public so they've got that and actually there was one of the diagrams in the book which showed you Ofsted outcomes so the judgments and progress eight scores there wasn't really much in it if you had a really good progress eight score you were outstanding if you had a quite a poor progress eight score um, you were unsatisfactory and that that in itself you could have just written a book just about that diagram um, so to go back to your question I think to begin with yes is the school effective or, or not effective what can we do to help and I think listening to Amanda Spillman last week or the week before on the Laura show um, when she was saying that we keep the grades because the DfE want those grades and they need to know about the quality of, of education in this country. And I can understand that as a very simplistic measure of somebody who holds the purse strings, who's, you know, drives, drives uh, national education policy, wanting to know, but then wanting to know on a piece of paper versus what that actually means for schools is very distorted. Um, so, yeah, lots of changes to the framework, some good, some bad. Some has caused a huge amount of workload for people in terms of, and I absolutely hate this phrase, deep dives. I don't understand, you know, what's wrong with like having a really good look or something. And maybe it's just, you know, it's what the phrase is fine, but it's just become a bit loaded. Um, but actually having 
the, the time taken away from you to rehearse and prepare and practice and talk about your intentions and your impact um, again and again and again with different people and make it look pretty on the website and draw roadmaps. It, it looks great. And I absolutely think those conversations are, are important and interesting to talk about why you teach and, you know, why you teach it and when you teach it. But the length that people have to go to prove that, I think, is exhausting. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Right. If we can get into my favorite chapter, if I'm allowed to have a favorite chapter, which is chapter five about it's Ofsted working. And I think you know, Tracy, why I'm going to say this is my favorite chapter because um, you're talking about whether Ofsted is working or not. And you've said, mm-hmm. uh, might we say Ofsted is raising standards, but not for all. And then mm-hmm. as I was reading through it over the weekend, I thought, oh, well, I recognize a few of these quotes because I've got at least two of them uh, yeah. are in my presentation for Research Ed Cheshire. God oh, blimey, that's the second <laughs> second plug I've done for myself. In my, well, if you, to be honest, if you can't <laughs> plug yourself. if you you can't plug yourself on your own podcast i mean where can you but you just thought and i was just almost sort of stand up and applauding with this because the amount of detail that you've gone into you've gone into far far more detail than i have with your research in terms of looking at so the quotes the ones that i had was the um in 2016 which found that schools with more disadvantaged pupils are less likely to be judged good or outstanding but you've drilled down further into that and said secondary schools up to five percent of pupils eligible for free school meals are over three times as likely to be rated outstanding as schools with at least 23 percent free school meals uh, that's one and for primary schools with those high numbers of children on free school meals are still only half as likely as those with low proportions of people on free school meals to be judged outstanding and the least deprived schools were also most likely to improve the Ofsted judgment and least likely to be downgraded even after accounting for their previous Ofsted judgment which just plays to everything that people that work within those euphemistically mm-hmm. t- named harder schools as I've called them yeah. so you know t- don't take in my own personal <laughs> sort of contextual um, t- version of this chapter but tell us a little bit more about is Ofsted working and maybe drill down more into those kind of figures for, for schools in different contexts yeah it, it was an interesting chapter to write because clearly if, you, if you're looking at producing something about is there a better way then obviously that leads you to thinking yeah well I don't think this is the best way at the minute but actually you know in fairness I did start to write a chapter kind of defense versus criticism um and I was and I was looking really hard for defense and I was looking really hard for has Ofsted made a difference does it make a difference and I have worked with some brilliant Ofsted HMIs I'm not criticizing the entire structure or um oh what's the word um i'm i'm not i'm not criticizing you know the the people who work for offset i'm not criticizing the, the people who work really hard who really have a passion for improving schools um but if if you take it if you strip it away and, and you say is offset working then according to their own measures according to their own judgments yes more schools are good more schools are better more schools are outstanding i know that you know since i started teaching there were seven different grades so I so I know that the sort of the measures are different um and also if we look at attainment the measures are different but yes more schools are judged to be better um I know from my experience that there are more better schools which I talked about before and when we look at outcomes it is very interesting because overall outcomes are better but as you say when you drill down to it outcomes are not better for all and I think since writing the book, one of the things I, I sort of think I think is this idea about curriculum. And when I've worked, I mean, I've worked in some very, very uh, challenging schools. And the reason that we have, as a leadership team, made that, you know, th- those schools um, an attractive place for, for students to want to come to and stay in, you know, not, not go home, stay in until five o'clock in the evening, stay on until sixth form is because of the offer and if I can call it the old days in the old days when we offered lots of BTECs we had lots of children engaged sorry this is this is, I say children now because I'm working in primary school <laughs> students um we had them stay at school we had them engaged because the curriculum was what they wanted and I think we have such a small curriculum now um and with the push on the back we really have pushed out all the creative industries and actually, we're not meeting the needs of our children in so many ways that when you're looking at, you know, a school where doing an EBAC isn't the right fit for a group of students 
and you're measuring the success of that school, that you're judging the success of that school, or your outcomes are based on those students fitting into that very narrow band of your sort of 10, 9, 8 subjects, then it is not a surprise to me that some students feel excluded from that model. And some schools know that that's not the right model for their for their students, for their communities and their context. And actually, we're not measuring the right things. So yes, on paper, very broadly, it would look if you just scratch the surface, which is what you know headlines do, schools have improved, outcomes are better, more students are staying on in school. That's that's a different bunch of reasons. But actually, when you do look, it's it's not raising standards for all. And if Ofsted's uh, role is to improve standards um, for everybody, then it hasn't done that and it's not doing that. And with the current framework and its fixation on the EBAC and this this not a broad and balanced curriculum, which they call it, um, then we're not going to get that attainment, that those outcomes, or even at you know what you really want is that engagement and enjoyment of education, and we're not getting that um, currently. No, thank you, Tracy. That's really helpful. So, I mean, having said that chapter five is my favourite chapter for the reasons that I've just explained at the beginning, chapter six just took me back um, on a little potted history. So I've always been deeply, I mean, obviously I'm a teacher, so I'm involved in teaching and learning, but that's been the kind of the priority uh, areas that I've looked at throughout the career. So as I said to you at the beginning, from being an AST, sort of early 2000s, you know, through to leading curriculums within uh, leading subject areas into teaching and learning assistant head and then you know further work as a deputy in that kind of area and the table uh, in your chapter about defense versus criticism about the <laughs> the change of emphasis on teaching and learning was just mm-hmm. absolutely fascinating so for the listeners mm-hmm. point of view if we just go back and it depends listener on your vintage so i'm going pretty much back to the beginning of this handbook day so i can go back to 99 uh, where teachers still marked a lot. Uh, in fact, I was laughing with my previous head teacher who I saw last week about the damage that it did to my boot at the time, the amount of marking that he used to send me <laughs> home to do. Still hasn't recovered yeah. from, from then. And 2005, now, again, depending on your vintage uh, listener, then you're going to be thinking about teachers spent time developing success criteria. I had a local authority advisor purely to refine mm. my learning objectives. Yeah. Yeah. off the back of um, Bloom's taxonomy and just yeah. a weekly session to decide which words. It didn't matter whether they learned it, Tracy. That, that was irrelevant. It was just <laughs> the words that I used to describe whether they yeah. had or not. And this was yeah. a, a weekly meeting. And, you know, she, she was great. And I'm sure that but she was working within the framework. And yeah. then you said about 2015, pace became the word. CPD around mm-hmm. questioning was was absolutely well, everywhere. Yes. And, and there's yeah. still a bit of a hangover with that sometimes, yeah. depending on yeah. who comes in and who, who speaks to you about it. But what I'm waffling around to a big question, because you talk about, and obviously we're all working within the uh, the work of Hirsch and Young mm-hmm. around, yeah. you know, sort of powerful knowledge. knowledge. Yeah. And again, third plug for own show. If listeners want to go back to podcasts with Michael Young or Don Hirsch, feel free. It's in the back catalogue somewhere. You can go and have a listen to those as well. Um, but their I'm work... I'm definitely going to go and listen to them. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the one with... Uh, with, with and he, I, he did tell me to call him Don, so I'm not pretending that I'm familiar with him in any way, shape mm-hmm. or form, but uh, he was very, very good. And it was one of the most intimidating experiences of my life when I um, opened the sort of podcast link with the video on. And he was sat in a palatial mansion in a leather armchair and I was sat in Charles II's bedroom. Um, I don't think yeah. I don't think that his, P, his PA had quite sold it in the way that um, perhaps it yeah. came across, but it was really eye-opening. So what I'm asking here, I guess, is, you know, in terms of who decides what good quality teaching and learning looks like and the, prov- the provocative question here is, does it really matter? Because if your outcomes are okay, it doesn't matter what your teaching and learning looks like. That's the only box that we need to tick. The outcomes are good, therefore students have got mm-hmm. knowledge, therefore teaching and learning must be good. I, so I suppose it goes back to the, to the point that I've, you know, just sort of made around outcomes of what so you know if if our outcomes are based on a narrow set of subjects then obviously some schools are going to perform better in those metrics than others um and I think unless you change one thing you can't really change another so in in schools where um it, it might be this is it's so it's so contextual isn't it so difficult to kind of talk about one type of school but if a school has got a cohort which is happy to engage in a narrow range of, let's say, traditional academic 
powerful knowledge subjects and they do well and the outcomes are good, that's great. If you've got a bunch of um, students who actually want to do a bit more of music tech or they want to do some of the other kind of it. I mean, I don't know much about the T-levels really and how they're landing, but um, if students are interested in the arts or music or creative um, I know for example I, I teach geography so I know that there's a climate change GCSE coming in I don't know what bucket that's going to sit in I'm guessing three but if you've got students who are interested in different things then surely we should be able to measure their successes and outcomes of those things that they are interested in and it's relevant to their lives and we have high quality exam you know um, qualifications for them I'm not I'm not suggesting that they, they do something which is dumbed down or anything, not at all, not at all, because every subject has got knowledge to it. Otherwise, you can't make any sense and, and apply it to anything else and do something with it. You have to know. Um, so I guess I'm kind of losing my thread on your question, really. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I don't think it's as simple as that. I don't think outcomes, good outcomes must mean good teaching and learning. Um, so I, th- I think it's much more complex than that. And I think it's really every single school will have its own story um and every con every every school will have different challenges that make teaching and learning different um i've worked in a probably gosh about five or six schools as a teacher or leader and i've been into lots of other schools as an ast or a consultant um and you it doesn't it doesn't you know good teaching and learning from a single practitioner doesn't translate from one context to the other very very easily or quickly so actually measuring good quality teaching and learning is about whether that works in that school at that time um if that makes any sense i i think it's um you can hear that i i think it's a really complex complicated world that we're talking about no, absolutely. And, you know, it's a deliberately provocative question in the sense that people that work in perhaps, again, I keep talking about these, but those kind of more challenging environments will say that they'll spend a lot of time with teachers on a CPD program looking at particular pedagogical techniques that they can deploy from a toolbox. But actually, mm-hmm. outcomes still maybe aren't where they should be. And the, the, the kind of the focus perhaps should be as well on what does the curriculum look like? What does subject knowledge mm-hmm. for teachers look like? Because yeah. as you talk about later on in, in the book about the impact of, you know, some of these lower Ofsted grades is teacher turnover, new staff. It's more difficult to do that. So actually making sure mm-hmm. that you're working with your sort of teacher improvement program to involve subject knowledge enhancement and curriculum development alongside mm-hmm. to make sure that you've got, you've not got one without the other. Yeah. And, and I think that's where these sort of, um, almost fads come into come into the framework you know like you're saying about its change from marking to triple marking to to paste questioning now we've got cognitive science coming on board um and actually being able to just have a have a really kind of basic understanding of what makes good quality teaching and learning and there's so many organizations out there i'm not going to name them but there's so many groups out there who have got fantastic evidence about what works and in what context it works um and one of the things i write about in the book is about sort of the danger of ofsted research um where you know i have read some terrible things where uh, um five pupils have, have been involved in a particular case study and then it's published as a bit of ofsted research and i, and I don't know whether that's made up or not i've not fact checked that so i can't say um but actually i think it's a bit dangerous it, it, it challenges me to think, are Ofsted an accountability organisation or are they an improvement agency? And it doesn't seem to me that they are clear on that. And I think that's confusing for people because I remember when they published years ago something like 20 Best Outstanding Schools and every single school leader read that book, gave out chapters to the leadership team. We all had to do what these schools were doing. And at that time, that's what you know people did. But at the minute, you've got subject reports you've got Ofsted reviews um there's an awful lot of them and they're not written necessarily by the same people so they're not always focusing on the same thing pedagogy as you say is not always discussed in the same way in each report and I'm not knocking them either they get some really brilliant experts to to come and help write those but I just think it's a bit of a dangerous world where they're holding schools to account suggesting things on the report what they need to do better and then they've got their own rhetoric 
in the review. So actually, to give yourself a chance of doing really well, you just go through their sort of website, really, don't you? And you learn all the things that they want to see and what they're looking for, to the exclusion of some of the really good research and CPD that's out there. Yeah, completely. And and there's a lot of lethal mutations around. If you think about the Ofsted research review around cognitive science, and again, I mean, this is probably the most plugged of my own podcast I've ever done, but you can go back and <laughs> listeners can go and, and go to Daniel Mers for this one, who wrote that. And I, I felt that having two conversations with him, I understood the sort of developmental nature of that research and how you could incorporate that into your practice to improve things. Yeah. But now it does seem to be, you know, from speaking to, to people on the podcast about inspections that they've had, it's right. Well, do you have retrieval practice questions at the beginning yeah. of your lesson? Because we know from cognitive science, the retrieval yeah. practice is the best method to test with a long-term memory tick in box. Whereas actually it didn't seem like that research review was written in that way. And actually, no. like you said, some of those references by, I'm sure, and I'll have to, I should have to fact check this as well, but I can always go back and listen to it. I'm pretty sure that some of those, you know, were only embryonic research uh, into mm -hmm. those particular areas and didn't have huge sample sizes on those either. But they do seem to have become yeah. gospel now, don't they, to be applied yeah. by, by everybody. And, that, and that, that's a really good point. You know, I, I've worked in schools, I've gone in, you know, to do some consultancy in schools where... The student at the beginning of every lesson, six periods, has a six minute multiple choice question. And you must just, you know, if I had to do that as somebody who is engaged in learning and really wants to learn and is generally quite a compliant person, I would be so fed up by lesson five or six. I would just probably tick any old thing. Um, so, yeah, talk about a sort of a lethal mutation um, and, and not necessarily having the teachers the students no that that does that doesn't sound right I was going to say that you know them doing it because they're sort of almost made to do it because that's what the research says that they should do but without thinking about it too much but I don't really mean that uh, te teachers think an awful lot about what they're doing I think sometimes the issue is they do it because that's kind of what's coming from above that they should do it um, and then they spent hours writing all of these multiple choice questions and things. So, yeah, my heart goes out for someone that has to teach, you know, 27 hours a week now um, and put those sorts of things in all the lesson to show that they're doing the retrieval practice. Well, indeed, indeed. But at least they don't spend um, three terms writing success criteria and learning <laughs> objectives to incorporate Bloom's taxonomy. So perhaps, you know. Green, green pen, purple pen. <laughs> oh, goodness me. We need, to, we need to do a whole other podcast, though, don't oh, we, on that no, one? Yeah, yeah. And I was also explaining to somebody else um, the other week as well about the Ofsted outstanding lesson in a box. Uh, that people don't believe could have possibly been a thing. But perhaps it wasn't for everybody, but I certainly know of people that had that, that when it was time for any kind of inspection, local authority, Ofsted, you know, performance management, whatever it might be, there was just one particular lesson that had all of the correct boxes. Yeah. To, so it had those very, very tight uh, objectives. It had the starter activity. It had the group tasks, the card sort, the mini plenary, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Sort. Oh, it was all there. <laughs> It was all there. And every time without, you know, you could, if you shaded the matrix, you got the outstanding yeah. and uh, and off you went. So, yeah, it was yeah. fascinating to look back at that. Right, I'm just conscious, Tracy, that we want to make sure that people want more and go and get the book, which yeah. I know they will. So we're going to do one or two more questions and then obviously leave the listener wanting more. And we did touch on before about the impact of the grading system. And Ooh. I know you've written in the chapter, uh, chapter six that we're still in, about the impact of poor grades. But perhaps you could talk a little bit about the impact of the grading system as a whole the impact mm. of good grades, I suppose, or uh, and also more of which you've written about in the chapter, the impact of poor grades on um, you know schools and teachers that work within them. I think I think it I think it's overwhelmingly very divisive because I I've worked in schools where we have got the school from special measures to outstanding, and there there is there was no greater joy that we felt as a leadership team, you know, for our young people, for our families in our community, that that school had changed. So it is, in, you know, when it goes well, it's like everything, isn't it? When it when it's good, it's good. It's really empowering. You feel like you've earned it. You feel like you've worked really hard for it. And most schools get the right judgment. When it goes badly, it is absolutely devastating it's devastating for communities it's devastating for individuals it's devastating for the for the pride that the children feel and the young people feel in their school 
And as much as you can say to a group of people, oh, we were outstanding, but we're now good, you can't help but think that somebody somewhere along the line is thinking, oh, you've messed up somehow, haven't you? You've done something wrong. You've let the side down. You've let the team down. What have you been doing? You've taken your eye off the ball. Whereas actually that could be completely out of somebody's control, you know, leadership team's control. And I can only imagine what it would be like to have been one of those schools that's gone from outstanding to unsatisfactory or requires improvement. Whether whether it was because of a specific reason or not, I just, you know, I've heard of lots and lots of teachers, lots of head teachers who can't then face going to school the next day when, when that happens. Um, and, and I know that there are issues around not being a, allowed to tell people the grade. So I myself was, um, as a head teacher, had an inspection in January and the inspection, you know, happened and they give you the grade and just before they leave, they say, oh, don't tell anyone. And having that weight in your head, Yes, it might be shared between a few of you, but that's an extraordinary thing to carry. So, yes, people, you know, when the grades go well, um, it, 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 it can be changing. It can be affirming. Um, and when it doesn't, it is absolutely shattering and devastating. And, of course, some schools might not be doing as well as they could. But to have that labelled in such a blunt way is is not at all appropriate. Um and I think also what I've come across is, so I, I remember years and years ago having worked in a school that was um, good and not outstanding. And I remember going to talk to some friends who were looking to um, interview some people for their school. And and they were saying, oh, we can't interview them because they don't work in an outstanding school. And I thought, I don't know what you mean. You know, what do you mean they don't work in an outstanding school? And I was like, oh, well, our school's outstanding. And actually... They only work in a good school, so they can't possibly teach as well as we need them to teach in our school. And I thought, crikey, that, that's something that's terribly wrong with the system, isn't it? Because I've worked in lots and lots of challenging schools, and quite often, not entirely, and I'm not making a you know, massive assumption, but quite often in those challenging schools, you have some of the best teachers I've ever worked with who are there every day, being challenged every day for a whole bunch of reasons, and the, the the idea that somebody somewhere looks down on them and their ability and their capability as a practitioner because they work in a tough school. And there is a whole section which I've quoted from, you know, other great writers there about what that does to stuck schools, whether it's a, a, attraction of, of staff, students, buying from parents. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's not fit for purpose. I do understand that people are absolutely delighted when their grades improve, but conversely, it's way too damaging. So in in sort of overall, if you had to come down on whether it's a good idea to have them or not, I think the balance would be no, get rid of the grades. It's, it's too blunt an instrument. And if it is just so that the DfE can have a spreadsheet with, we have 67% of good schools in this country, I think we need another way for them to get that information. Um, so they can see that. I don't know what they do with that anymore, but they can see that and they can see what the quality of schools is like, because if the grade is just for them, that's not good enough. No, absolutely. I can feel that a lot of people who are listening to this will absolutely be agreeing with that. And if, if you do go listener to um, figure 21, which is a vicious cycle, which is really interesting and just illustrates Tracy's point there about low inspection grade, teacher turnover increases. Then you've got that, as we talked about before, subsequent inspections are less likely to be less than good. Mm-hmm. And then the intake becomes more deprived and, and kind of on we go. And just on that point, and, and you know, um, I speak to people all the time and I speak to people who I spent their whole career working within good and outstanding schools, but at some point via a promotion, whatever it might be, I've been tempted to work in, you know, again, those euphemistically harder schools. And I've mm-hmm. been surprised after a couple of years of being in there at the perception from the wider educational, you know, um, world around their abilities as a leader yeah. or a teacher. It's almost as if, well, when you're in an outstanding or a good school, it's perfectly okay for you to be trusted to go and, you know, yeah. deliver CPD to other schools, which you wouldn't be able to do, or they, they tell me that you wouldn't be able to do. You can't be an Ofsted inspector 
for yeah. example, because Ofsted inspectors can only be drawn from good schools. And I don't know whether that's mm-hmm. historic and whether you've ever been allowed to work in a school that's uh, anything less than good to be that, which obviously then again clouds their judgment because they can't understand the challenges necessarily. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of challenges for people that are considering working in these. But but I think I would echo what you're saying there, that, that some of the people that do work in these schools are the best teachers because they have to be. Not only are they teaching their subject and the students, but they're dealing with all of the issues and the challenges within the communities as well. And they keep coming in day after day to, to do that. And like I said, that's that's not always knocking off them necessarily, but it's an awareness of that in this kind yeah. of one size fits all model that I think is perhaps missing, yeah. isn't it? Well, it just always keeps right, coming perfectly. Coming well, back, because this is this is definitely, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, if, if we absolutely leave people wanting more, because what they're going to say to me is, "So great, well, we've talked about all the issues with Ofsted, and we've talked about that, but what are the suggestions moving forward?" Now, you have <laughs> touched on it already about comparative accountability systems, but listener, we're not going to tell you. We're going to say, go out and buy the book. Go out and buy the book. Yeah. So, a reminder yes. that the book is a John Cat book, isn't it? And is it out now, Tracy? Is it already available? Yeah, it's, it's out on the 21st of July, but you can pre-order it uh, from Amazon. I've checked and it's there. And it's bright pink, so you can't miss it. Perfect. Well, we, we're going to project ourselves forward and say this is round about the 21st of July as you're listening to this. So it'll be available now. And it is Please. Rethinking School Inspection. Is there a better way? And it's a John Cat book, as we said. Right, Tracy, last little bit. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way mm-hmm. to do that? And how can the, I mean, you mentioned that the book is out, but tell us where we can get it from and perhaps where you're going to do any events around book launches or conferences or whatever it might be in the next few weeks and months. Um, well, I'm on Twitter. I'm at TOB22. Um, I haven't organised a book launch yet. I was just going to see what the initial kind of response was. Um, but that's that's the best way to find me. I don't, I don't uh, tend to do much in terms of um, conferences yet. I don't know whether this book's going to launch me into being a conference speaker. Um, but I'm not, I'm not kind of that type of person. I just get on with it. <laughs> love being in school, love working with young people. Um, but if anybody wants some, um, I, I think the first book about school self-review has got some really practical things that school leaders can do to make accountability much easier. So if you need any kind of talking through that or anything, please just give me a shout through Twitter and I'll be happy to talk and help anybody. That's great. And if I was still organizing uh, research ed conferences, Tracy, I'd absolutely get you in to talk about uh, this book because I think it's going to be game changing for a lot of people in the way that they think about inspection, the way they prepare for inspection and the way the wider sort of school community understands inspection. I think this is a a really important piece of work, which is why I reached out to you and I've really enjoyed sort of initially flicking through and reading some of the chapters and I'm going to spend a bit more time over the summer just looking through that so really appreciate your time today thank you thank you so much for coming on to Nailers Matter really appreciate it no thank you very much It's, it's been interesting talking about it because you know yourself when you write something and you spend a lot of time doing a lot of research and you put it down on paper when you've got the finished thing, you read it loads of times to check for spellings <laughs> and things like that. But actually, it's really, really good to remind yourself what you think about things. So, yeah, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed talking it through. And thanks for having me on the show. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers.